All right. Well, we have been journeying through the book of Philippians. So we're going to continue on that journey today. And the book of Philippians is packed with full of so much gold, so much treasure. So if you've missed out on some of the other talks, then I would encourage you to go back and catch up. Last week, Ryan beautifully unpacked the Jesus prayer, which is rich and deep in theology. But today we're moving on to practical ethics. This next passage is full of clear instructions for the Philippians. So I've had a great week diving into this passage and doing lots of reading. So some of the thoughts that I'm going to share, probably the best ones, are from Beth Moore, Stephen Fowle and Mike Vole. So let's all stand to our feet and we will... Get into the Word of God. Philippians 2, 12 to 19. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, you can take a seat. So Paul starts by drawing a similarity with Jesus and the Philippians. In the previous passage, he said that Jesus was obedient to death. And here in this passage, he says the Philippians have always obeyed. So he's not calling them out of wayward living into obedience. He's encouraging them to continue on with obedience. And like Luke mentioned just before, Eugene Peterson calls following Jesus with obedience a long, slow walk in the same direction. I just love that. It's putting one foot in front of the other day after day. It's keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on what is up ahead. And so Paul is urging them to be obedient whether he's there or not. He's urging them to learn to live consistently. The reality is that living consistently is really hard. Anyone who's ever started a new routine knows this, whether it's a Bible reading plan, a quiet time, a healthy eating plan, exercise routine, a new hobby, trying to learn a new instrument, whatever it is, it's really hard to stay the course. We need self-discipline, sacrifice, motivation, perseverance, and energy. It's so hard. We got to commit time to it. So... Here, Paul is saying, stay the course, be consistent. It's so much easier for us to give ourselves fully and completely to big displays of affection and passion that only happen once or twice. It's easier to run a marathon that's got a beginning and an end and a fair amount of glory attached to it than it is to get up every morning in the cold and the dark and put on your running shoes and go out running day after day, year after year. It's easier to get your spouse an amazing present and write amazing words of affirmation once a year on their birthday than it is to get up every morning and show them love and respect, to listen to them, to be sacrificial in the way that you serve them. That's so much harder. It's easy to sit here on a Sunday morning and get really fired up and inspired. 
But it's much, much harder to go home, to change the way we live, to let God transform us. It's harder to humble ourselves. It's harder to pick up our cross and follow Him. It's harder to lay down our selfish ambitions, our desires for comfort. That's the hard stuff. It's hard to open our hearts, open the broken places of our heart and and let God in. Paul is talking here about consistency and being consistent is making decisions for Jesus every day of our life in every single facet of our life, family life, relationships, work life, and in our wider community. So Paul's saying, be the same no matter who you're with. He's no longer with them, but he's desperate that they stay on the narrow road. Why? Because it leads to more life. Because Paul loves the Philippians. At the beginning of the passage, he addresses them, dear friends. And it's a reflection of how his heart burns for them. His heart longs to see them coming more and more to life in Jesus. And I can stand here this morning and relate with Paul. I can stand here and say, hand on heart, the leadership here at Bay Vineyard burns to see this community, us included, grow in our walk with Jesus. We want to see people walking into places of healing and wholeness. We want to see people breaking out of addictions. We want to see the love of Jesus rising up in all of us and spilling over into our workplaces and into our communities. Paul wants what we are always talking about, personal renewal, which comes through obedience, trust, sacrifice, and making those daily decisions for Jesus. Are we the same on a Sunday morning as we are through the week? Are we the same in our workplace as we are in our home church and our huddle? And I don't mean are we having the same conversations because they're going to be radically different. But do we have the same heart? Do we have the same convictions? Do we have the same ethics and the same gentleness in our speech? Do we have the same humility when we're talking to a respected Christian leader as we do when we're talking to a family member or our children? Now, I don't say these questions to bring condemnation. These are difficult questions. I say this to urge us on in consistency with our walk with Jesus. I have recently been prayerfully thinking about doing a postgraduate diploma in primary school teaching because I feel like God's given me a real heart for kids. And so the idea would be when I graduate, I still work part-time for the church, which I love, and I work part-time as a primary teacher and do some relieving days. But something about being a relief teacher frightens me on a deep fundamental level because I remember what we did to the relief teachers back in the 90s. I don't know if you guys remember. I know that Sonne Moriarty remembers because we were talking about this at football yesterday morning. We used to taunt them and mock them and traumatise them on purpose. I remember our dear sweet relief teacher leaving the room to get something for us once only to return to find we'd locked her out and the whole room was going completely mad like wild animals, jumping on the desks, throwing things, making loud noises, making faces. And I'm sure she thought that we'd have our fun and eventually calm down, but we just never did. And so eventually she trundled off to the office to get a spare key. And of course, when she got back, the door was wide open and we were all sitting there at our own desks and everything was nice and tidy and quiet. It's a terrifying thing being a relief teacher. (laughs) Now, we would never have behaved like that if our normal English teacher had been there. Never in a hundred years. And so... 
Paul's saying, be the same no matter who you're with. But in order for them to do that, they need internal motivation that comes from Jesus, not just external motivation that comes from Paul's teaching and and experience. And it's the same with us. We gotta have the internal motivation that comes from Jesus, not just external motivation that comes from Sam preaching a rousing message and us all getting inspired. Mike Vole sums it up really beautifully with this. So if you forget everything else, I want you to remember this. If our behaviour is dependent on who is there and what our circumstances are, then our hearts have not really been changed. If our behaviour changes, our hearts have not really been changed. We want God to transform our hearts from the inside out. Paul goes on to say, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So on one level, this statement is surprising from Paul because he's known for preaching salvation comes from faith alone. You just need faith. But here he is having no problem telling the Philippians they got to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So on one hand, of course, they've already been saved when they open their hearts to Jesus. But on the other hand, he's calling them to work out their salvation in the present day, day by day, encouraging them to engage purposefully and actively with God. So working out what he's already worked out in them. I was chatting about this with Blair last night and he said this, which is so great. It's divine revelation and human responsibility. It's both together. So Paul speaks about salvation as something in the past, the present, and the future. And there are so many scriptures that point to this. And Beth Moore has done an awesome job of identifying these. So I'm just going to put these up um, behind you. So you can see that in terms of what's already happened, you can find it in Romans, Timothy, and Titus. And in terms of what's currently happening, the scriptures in Corinthians. And in terms of what will happen one day, there's a heap in Romans and also 1 Corinthians. Beth Moore says this, Christian discipleship is a journey toward becoming the new creatures God has already made us in Christ. Here in Philippians 2.12, Paul's primary focus is on the Philippians community as a whole, but little happens in a household of believers that doesn't occur in the hearts of individual members. Paul reminds us no one can take on our participation in Christ for us, not even our most devoted mentors. No friend, Bible teacher, pastor, writer, spouse, or parent can work out for us what God has worked in us. We take responsibility for our own part of the discipleship process. So how do we work out the salvation that God through Jesus has already worked and is continuing to work in us? Well, according to Paul, it's by obedience. In the passage before, he calls us to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, the same attitude in self-sacrificial love, the same attitude in humility. And if we're wondering why it says work it out with fear and trembling, in verse 13 it tells us it's God who's working in us. So let's pause for a moment and remember, this is the God of the universe. This is the God that causes the seraphim, the angels, to fall down on their faces to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty over and over and over again for all eternity. This is the God of the universe who spoke the world into being out of the dark, who formed us out of the dust and breathed life into us. This is the God who is the author, the sustainer and the perfecter of our faith. 
God knows what he's doing and what he wills us to do. Everything he calls us to and invites us into is for his good purpose. It says that in verse 13. We don't see the whole picture, but we know that if God is involved and if we're obedient to his promptings, then he is working for his good purpose. His plan is always good. So like the Philippians, we're encouraged to work out what our salvation looks like on a daily basis by sitting in his presence, spending time with him, reading his word, allowing him to shape and change us by trusting him, allowing his truth to set us free, letting the revelations he give us not just change the way we think, but change the way we act, the way we behave by being obedient when we're invited to explore the dysfunctional things in our life. And often God will just put his finger on something. And this happened to me recently. God put his finger on something in my life. And by his grace, I was ready to listen. And I feel like I've gone through a process in the last six weeks of him cracking me open in order for him to put me back together again. I had a reaction to something that happened that was way out of proportion with reality. And so I realised, oh gosh, something's going on here. And, and when I dived a little deeper, I realised that one of my bruises had been pressed and God was inviting me into more healing. And so I talked to Sam, I talked to some friends, I went and saw a counsellor and God has just taken me on this beautiful journey. Now, I have been re-looking, like I said last week, at some of the dysfunctional decisions I made in my younger years. Now, I haven't gone back there so that I can sit in a place of shame and guilt and self-loathing. I have well and truly discovered the grace of God. I know I am living in His mercy. And the Bible tells us that our sin is separated as far as from the east is to the west, It can't get further than that. That's what the Bible tells us. If you're sitting there this morning feeling stink about some decisions, God separates our sin as far as from the east is to the west. So I haven't gone back there to get into that, but I've gone back there because there's more healing. And if there is more freedom and more healing to be had, then sign me up because I'm keen for that. And God has brought new revelation to these things that happened so many years ago. He led me back into a manual that I have by Dave Riddell, which uh, Dave Riddell is a Christian psychologist, and Sam and I did his Living Wisdom course when we first got married, and it's so good. And so I've been reading the chapter on unbearable feelings. So if you don't know what unbearable feelings are, we all have them. These are things that we try so hard to avoid. We will literally do anything we can not to feel these things. And they're different. There's lots of different unbearable feelings. For one person, it might be unbearable to feel rejected or unloved. For someone else, it might be feeling futile. For someone else, it might be feeling cruel. But because we try so hard not to feel these things, we can end up shaping our lives and making decisions so that we avoid our unbearable feelings. And so I've been thinking... What unbearable feelings drove me to make those dysfunctional decisions? And here's the important thing. Are they still driving my decisions today? Am I still a slave to them today? Because God's deepest desire and longing is that we continue to work out our salvation in Him in order to find more freedom It's about the freedom. that Formation leads us to freedom in Christ. The reality is that when God brings things up, we can say no. We've got free will. We don't need to let him into those places. And our salvation is not at risk. He still loves us. He still blesses us. 
But the important thing is our salvation may not be at risk, but the fruitfulness of our life and ministry is at risk. So if we say no to God, our salvation's not at risk, but the fruitfulness of our life and our ministry is at risk. Paul encourages the Philippians, don't just settle for salvation in terms of something that God has done, but partner with Him in what He's doing now and what He longs to do up ahead. Because God is always doing something fresh and something new in us if we let Him. The salvation that we receive when we open our heart to Jesus is a big deal. It's not something to be blasé or flippant about. It's a serious thing. We've got to guard it. We've got to treasure it. I remember when Sam and I came home from hospital with our first baby, little Eli, and he was so precious and so tiny. And I remember everything felt like a hazard. I was just looking around and the walls were coming in on me. And I was thinking, how in the world are people as unorganised as us going to keep this baby alive and let alone keep this baby alive but we have to help this baby grow and develop in a healthy way in the same way let's not be blase with our salvation we've got to be grateful for it understand the enormity of it and and let's do everything that we can to help it grow and develop in a really healthy way Verse 14, Paul says, Do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So Paul doesn't talk uh, explicitly about the Old Testament here in this letter of Philippians, but the Old Testament is always with him. He knew it so well. And so the words in this passage come straight out of the Old Testament. Grumbling, crooked, depraved generation, shine like stars. They come from parts of Numbers, Deuteronomy and Daniel. We don't know if the Philippians knew this. But isn't it just beautiful that Paul is so soaked in Scripture. He knows the Word of God so well that even when he's not directly quoting it, it's just flowing out of him in a beautiful way. Grumbling and complaining are often thought of as small things in relation to some of the big horrific stuff going on in the world, but they have got the potential to do huge amounts of damage. The word that Paul uses for grumbling or complaining, depending on what interpretation you've got, it's rich with scriptural significance. It brings to mind the disobedience of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. So if you don't know the story in the Old Testament, the Israelites are brought out of slavery in Egypt by God in a really miraculous way. And then they're left in the desert. And that's when the complaining and the grumbling begins because they're impatient and they don't know why they're there and, and God's doing something that they don't expect. And so the, the complaining begins and it festers and it grows. And I think we can all relate to how complaining spirals. We've all been in a group of friends before. Someone starts complaining, someone else joins in, you join in. And before you know it, you're having a great old time complaining about everything. And all of a sudden you realise that there's not a lot of good fruit that comes from this. Often complaining starts with a lack of trust in God and his plan. The Israelites didn't trust God. They were quick to forget his faithfulness. And so the grumbling starts to culminate. It starts to grow, sorry. And then, and then it culminates with them melting down the gold and making a golden calf in which they bow down to and start to worship instead of worshipping the God that led them to freedom. It seems crazy to us that that's where they got but it's hard to predict where complaining and grumbling will lead because 
Complaining and grumbling often leads to really dysfunctional decisions. Like the Israelites, at times we can fall into distrust when God's not doing what we expect him to do. Beth Moore says this, when we're en route to a new place, God is leading us and the road gets rocky, the tendency to revise and romanticize the past, to sulk in the self-pity of the present and become a false prophet over the future can be second nature. A poor outlook spreads to a poor attitude. The heart hardens and inevitably the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The experience of the Israelites in the wilderness would have resonated with the Philippians because they were facing a large amount of persecution and suffering for their faith, especially since Paul wasn't there. Now, it's important that we understand Paul isn't saying don't discuss the difficult things. He's not saying don't lament or grieve or be real or vulnerable with each other. Of course, we're called to do that. Learning to lament in a healthy way is so good and vital for community. Our faith has got space for rejoicing and lamenting. And in the season I've been in, there has been lamenting, there has been grief, there has been tears, but there has also been healing. And there's been so much processing. I'm an external processor. This is the way God wired me. Processing has been important to my mental, physical, and spiritual health. I've had to talk about this stuff. Healthy processing in the right place is so important. But getting into a negative loop of grumbling and complaining, of selfishness and entitlement, it it isn't the same thing. Sometimes we can just rehash things over and over in a dysfunctional way where we're reframing our lives like God is no longer in the mix, like he's no longer faithful, like he's no longer listening, like he doesn't love us anymore. And then the more we dwell on it, the more and more we start to believe these lies, even though they're not true. The book of Philippians reminds us that God is in control, that Jesus is Lord, that He can use everything for His glory when we're submitted to Him, that even the difficulties and the challenges are good when we engage with God and we believe in His goodness. And it's going to seem strange to the world when we respond like this. When we choose to believe in a good God, even in the face of real hardship and suffering, It's strange to the world. When we choose forgiveness in the face of betrayal instead of revenge, when we choose mercy and love, when we choose not to join in the workplace gossip, Paul says, don't complain or argue so you will be blameless and pure children of God. You'll shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. It's in the really hard seasons when we choose God's way that we're set apart We're a city on a hill. We're children of God. We're people that carry his vision and his heart. It's in the hard seasons when we respond to God in a humble and godly manner that it draws people to Jesus. And then in verse 16, Paul says, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So he wants to boast in the Philippians. He wants to boast in their consistency. He wants to boast in their formation. They're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. He wants to celebrate his part of the story. And likewise, it's so good when we celebrate our part in other people's story and their journey with God. Sam and I recently went away to the vineyard pastors 
Ambassadors Conference, and we had the delight of sharing about some of the discipleship that's happening here at Bay Vineyard. So we talked about the upper cliques, the huddles, the home churches, and it was really hard not to boast, but we tried not to because that would be really annoying. But we're excited and proud to share the journey that some of the people are taking here. God gets all the glory. He is so good, but it's nice for us to be part of it. And we know as we look around that our labours are not in vain because God is doing so many wonderful things in the hearts of the people in this community. Verse 17, he goes on to say, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The drink offering in the Bible was initiated once the Israelites had come into the promised land. It was a reminder that it was God who brought them out of slavery. It was a reminder that God was the one that had brought them to a place of peace and a place of rest. So they took the wine and they poured it out over the altar. They took something of worth to them and they poured it out. And it might seem to us like a bit of a waste, but it was a beautiful act of obedience and sacrifice and worship. So Paul is saying, my life is like a drink offering poured out. He recognises he might die. He's saying he's okay with that. And he wants them to be okay with it. Paul just had this beautiful eternal perspective that meant even in the face of death, he had God's peace. Beth Moore says this, the faith of the Philippians in such a hostile environment for the gospel would be a sacred and holy sacrificial service. Perhaps Paul is saying to the Philippian saints, whatever precious sacrifice of suffering and service they end up giving to God on the altar, he would gladly count his own death poured out with it as a drink offering. There is a consistent theme in Paul's letters It's this call to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Romans 12, 1 says, live as a living sacrifice. Choosing Jesus was the best decision that I made. I know what it's like to live without Jesus and I know what it's like to live with him. And yes, it's painful and hard to be poured out like a drink offering at times. But this is the life of rejoicing. This is the life of deep joy. This is the way that leads us more and more to life. So I want to encourage you this morning to continue to choose Jesus, to continue to let your life be poured out for him because this is the way that leads to life.